that uh, deals with that particular topic of scripture, that truth of God's word. And so there are, you may not know, there are quite a number of passages, uh, more than you might realize in, in the scriptures, that deal with the ascension of Christ, his reign at the right hand of God. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you were to take a, you know, uh, your Bible, you, maybe when you have your coffee in the morning and reading your Bible, look to start reading through your New Testament especially, but also the Old and Mark, how many times it mentions the, the ascension of Christ explicitly or implies it in some way, I think you might be surprised how often uh, the subject uh, comes up and in how many different ways it comes up. And so uh, I thought being as, I, in my opinion, which is worth whatever it's worth, uh, I believe the ascension is one of those doctrines that, although it's in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we recite it every time we recite those summaries of the Christian faith, uh, the Ascension is one of the more neglected doctrines in all of Scripture, and that makes no sense if you think about how often it comes up in the Bible, how, how often it is mentioned there, uh, the fact that it could, it could be so uh, neglected and, and not really thought about much uh, should kind of be shocking to us, but I thought we could look at a text that deals with that uh, in some ways. So if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 23, and we're going to spend most of the time in the sermon on the end of that passage. But give ear to the word of God, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. It says, Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not give, uh, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, again, having mentioned just briefly that uh, I believe that the, the ascension of Christ is such a neglected doctrine, um, I'll kind of turn that on its head a little bit. Um, if it's important, how important do you believe the ascension of Christ is uh, in, in the truth of, of God's word? How important is it to the Christian faith and life? How important should it be in the life of the church? And I will say this, and I think scripture backs this up. In many ways, the ascension of Christ and his present work for our salvation is every bit as important for our salvation as his death and resurrection are. They're every bit as important as his incarnation, as his death, his resurrection. Here is what no less than ben, Benjamin B. Warfield had to say on the subject. He says, we are accustomed to think of Christ dying for us. Let us remember that he not only died for us, but rose again for us. Paul says that he who was delivered up for our trespasses was raised for our justification. And let us remember that he was not only raised for us, but ascended into heaven for us and sits at the right hand of God for us. You know, it's been said uh, many times that that kind of phrase, 
uh, it, it'll say that uh, that Christ was was crucified and that he was raised and that he was ascended. That that is is doctrine. But when it says that he was that he died for us, that he was raised for us, that he ascended for us, like that's the gospel. That's that's the Christian faith. That's 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 the important aspect of it as regards our salvation. That he didn't just do those things, although he did. He did those things for us and for our salvation, and that includes his his ascension. Uh, Warfield goes on to say that Christ not only died to pay for our sins, but also that he now reigns in heaven. And why does he do that? What is he doing as he's reigning in heaven? In heaven, he's applying to us the benefits of the salvation that he purchased on our behalf on the cross. That is what he is doing at the right hand of God, is applying the salvation that he has done for us to us and to uh, this world as he makes his gospel go forth and he conquers the world by it. So our text this morning, as we just read, it's uh, Paul's prayer, one of his prayers in the book of Ephesians, his prayer for the Ephesian church. And as we read that, imagine if you were in the, the Ephesian church, you were in the city of Ephesus, that great pagan city which had the temple of Diana and this fledgling young Christian church in the first century. You get a letter from Paul who had spent so much time there preaching and teaching the people. And he tells them uh, how he prays for them and thanks God for them all the time. Imagine what an encouragement that must have been for those believers who were relatively new to the Christian faith, not just to know someone's praying for them, but to know the Apostle Paul thanked God for them and was consistently and constantly keeping them in prayer. And so what does Paul say that he, what does he tell them that he prayed for for them? You ever, you know, I'm sure that we all are, are apt to tell each other when we see each other, especially if you're going through a trial, hey, I'm praying for you, and I hope that is an encouragement as we say that to each other. But Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm praying for you, I thank God for you. He tells them, here's what I pray for for you. And I think this is one of those things I, I actually meant to read part of this text before I led in prayer because I wanted to lead in prayer based on this, but I'll, I'll manage to do that, Lord willing, after the sermon. But what did he pray for for them? In verses 18 to 19, he mentions three things that, 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 uh, about God that he was praying for the Ephesian believers to know better. He prayed that they would come to know, quote, the hope of their calling in Christ. It's one thing to have that hope, but it's another thing to understand it properly and have the benefit of it in how we live. He prayed that they would come to know better the riches, quote, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, verse 18. And then verse 19, he prays, and we're going to spend most of our time on this, that they might come to know better, quote, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The omnipotence of God, so to speak toward those of us who are believers in Christ. That's what he wants them to understand. And that's probably something, if you think about it, that we don't really think about much. It's not something that, that hits you over the head. In fact, I think sometimes, you know, when, when you see people that are involved in kind of uh, more hyper-charismatic circles, uh, I, I sometimes wonder when you see that kind of behavior and that kind of, of thing, if that's not what this is a search for. They want to have some kind of outward manifestation so they can sort of feel the, the greatness of the power of God at work in them. And yet those aren't the things that Paul points to in Ephesians when he talks about the power of God. In fact, I, I was very tempted to preach a longer text when I started reading into it, but I'll leave this for your own homework, so to speak, your own reading. 
Um, you know, these chapter divisions in your Bibles, they're, they're all well and good. They help us find where we are in the Bible, right? If you're preaching and you just say, turn to Ephesians, uh, you may have trouble finding the text if I don't say chapter and verse. Uh, but I think what Paul gets to chapter 2, he's still on the same subject. He's actually telling them, he's going on to tell them what God did, what the power of God was at work in them, uh, in their salvation in Jesus Christ. And what does he talk about in chapter 2? That God took them who were dead in their sins, spiritually dead, you know, dead to God, and made them what? By his mercy made them alive together with Christ. And he even mentions having raised them up and seated them with him, seated us with him, at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Like He's still on the same subject in chapter 2. He's like, you want to know power? This is power. God took you when you were dead, if you're a Christian, and made you alive in Christ. That is, the, I think, the main thing he's talking about, but more than that later on. But that'll be a different a sermon for a different Sunday. Now, in the course of, of Paul telling these Ephesian Christians how he prayed for them, for their growth in grace, for their growth in knowledge of Christ, uh, and they're growing even in the knowledge of the immeasurable power of God uh, that's at work in those who believe. He says something about the power of God at work, specifically in the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so being as it's Ascension Sunday, I'd like us to look at some things regarding in that particular part of the passage. So rather than going through the prayer in great um, you know, minute detail, which we won't do this morning, I thought it seemed fitting that we should spend some time looking at what Paul says about the ascension of Christ in verses 20 to 23 in particular. So the first thing, when Paul wanted to tell us about the greatness of the power of God at work in us, uh, not in just the abstract or in general, but toward those who believe. He wants believers in Christ to know the power of God at work in us and towards us. And he first, when he did that, the first thing he thought about, the very foremost thing in his mind, was the power that he worked in Christ, verse 20, in his resurrection and in his exaltation in the ascension. When his mind goes to the power of God at work toward us who believe, the first thing that came to his mind in this particular case was Christ's exaltation, his resurrection from the dead on the third day and his ascension to the right hand of God. Now, he doesn't, he's not doing this in any way to minimize the power of God at work in the cross of Christ or in his incarnation, but I think that what he's trying to do here and what he is doing, he's, he's emphasizing something that we might neglect, and that is the ongoing present work of Christ, the, the present ongoing power of Christ toward those who believe. And so what does he do? He, he states the truth of the resurrection. He reminds the Ephesian believers of the ascension of Christ. Look again at verses 19 to 21. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that being said, just as the incarnation, the sufferings, the death and burial of Christ are often referred to as Christ's state of humiliation, his, his, humble, his humbling, uh, even so his resurrection, his ascension, and what we sometimes call his session at God's right hand, his enthronement, are often referred to by theologians as his state of exaltation. So that's what Paul is focusing on here. Um, how exalted is the Lord Jesus Christ right now? 
When you think about how humble he was in his incarnation, it's, it's infinite. It's, it's hard for us to grasp how the, the abject humility that Christ endured in his incarnation, not to mention his sufferings and his death and even his burial, um, but he's not only done all that, he's not only conquered death and the grave through the resurrection, but by his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he has now been, as Paul says, placed, quote, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is the age that's to come. You know, you, you get the impression sometimes, not just here, but elsewhere in the scriptures, that, you know, words are kind of strained to their breaking point in trying to express the truth and the magnitude of what Paul is describing here when it comes to Christ's exaltation. It's like we don't even have a category for it. You know, whatever we think is the greatest exaltation you can think of, Paul says, well, it's far above that. Like when the psalmist says that the glory of God is above the heavens. Like it's, it's so infinite as to be beyond our grasp. And I think that's the same thing when it comes to Christ's exaltation. Uh, he, he doesn't just say that, that Jesus was placed far up, you know, up just above all other powers and authority, but far above, he says, all rule, authority, and power and dominion. And his glory and majesty are also far above every name, not only in this life, but also in the one that is to come. You might know in, in the book of Philippians, elsewhere, the next book in your Bible, Paul brings up the same subject again in, in kind of the same way. He talks of Christ's incarnation his sufferings and exaltation, he says, Philippians 2, 8, 11, he says, and being found in human form, he, that is, that is Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? Now, to, to be humble to death is one thing. You know, for the Son of God incarnate to die, to submit himself to death would be one thing entirely. But the death of the cross was a, was a criminal's death. It was a shameful death. It was capital Punishment for him to submit to that, the one who knew no sin, to submit to that, that is abject uh, humiliation for our salvation. But he says, even death on a cross, therefore, you know, because of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he's not just saying everybody should. He's not just saying, although it's true, that every knee should bow in the sense of, you know, everybody morally should, but everybody won't. He's not just saying every tongue should confess. He's saying that that is going to happen. One day, everyone who rejects Christ, they will still bow the knee to Christ. One day, the most hardened atheist who rejected Christ and the gospel all of his life will confess with his tongue that Christ is Lord. He will acknowledge that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray that more people would do that out of faith in this life at conversion and not just at the judgment uh, in that way. But, but either way, every tongue will confess, every knee will Bow. And so Christ's exaltation above all things at the right hand of God the Father. Um, what, is, what does Paul tell you there in that text and in our text as well? His exaltation at the right hand of God is his purchased reward for his finished work on the cross. It's because he submitted to the death of the cross on our behalf 
Because of that, Paul says, therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him to his right hand. It's impossible to rightly understand the ascension and exaltation of Christ apart from the cross and his work of redemption for our salvation. His exaltation is his reward that he purchased on the cross uh, for our salvation. So Paul would say one thing that Christ is ascended, that he is exalted. The second thing that Paul would have us understand about Christ's ascension is that it means that, as he tells us in verse 22, that because of that, it means that God has put all things under his feet. In other words, Jesus Christ has been made now the head of all things. Everything, everything in the universe, Jesus is now the head of it. Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says, Christ is not only exalted above all creatures, but he has dominion over them. All are placed in absolute subjection to him. They are under his feet. So he's not just greater than them. Everything is in subjection to him. He is now Lord over all things. This is spoken of in Psalm 8 where it says this. You have given him dominion over the work of your hand, the works of your hands. You have put what? All things under his feet. Now that was in some ways true of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and of mankind given dominion over all things. But in a greater sense, the psalmist here is talking of Christ's exaltation and his uh, dominion over literally all things having been put under his feet. In fact, the book of Hebrews quotes that very psalm in that very same passage in Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, when it says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. So notice the same, the same thing is mentioned there that Paul mentions uh, in Philippians and Ephesians, that, that he was for a little while made lower than the angels in his humiliation, but then he was crowned with glory and honor and all things were put under his feet. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There it is again. Why is he exalted at the right hand of God? Because he submitted to death of the cross. The the glory comes after the cross, the crown comes after the cross as well. So it says there as well as, well as elsewhere, nothing is outside of the control and reign of Christ. And although the writer of Hebrews puts it like this, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What's he saying? He's saying everything is presently, not just future. Everything right now is under Christ's feet. He is the Lord now over all things But to us, to our eyes, to our feeble senses, it doesn't look like it, does it? Because we still see sin. We still see misery. Most of our prayer requests have something to do with one or the other or both of those things, don't they? It doesn't look like he's reigning sometimes. We see that the rebellion against his reign in so many ways 
We don't yet see it, but everything is in subjection to him. He's reigning over all things now, and one day that subjection of all things to Jesus Christ will be made fully manifest for all to see. It, it is going to happen. And, you know, is that not our hope and joy as believers? If you're a believer in Christ, is that not what you long to see? To see everything openly in subjection to Christ and righteousness reigning over all things. Now, the Son of God was over all things from all eternity as he was and is truly God of one substance with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. What's being spoken of in our text is not that, uh, that and, and elsewhere, this is the exaltation of him as the Christ, as the God-man, as the incarnate Son of God, having taken to himself human nature for our salvation. So his exaltation, his reign right now, are, are as the incarnate Christ, sharing in our true human nature with a body and a soul. So it is as our Savior and mediator that all things are now under his feet. That's the difference. The Son of God has always been Lord over all things, but now as the Christ, it's as if he's Lord over all things all over again, but he's, he's doing even that in our place as our mediator. It's for our benefit as well as for his glory that he reigns over all things, even now at the right hand of God. And if that's the case, how can all things not work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to, our, to his purpose? In Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach. The reign of Christ over all things in the book of Revelation. You could say Revelation is bookended on, on both ends. About the reign of Christ over all the rulers of this earth. Revelation 1.5. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible. It talks about Jesus Christ. Remember that vision of Christ that John gets. I won't read the whole thing. But what does he talk about? What does he call Jesus? He calls him, quote, Revelation 1.5. The ruler of kings on earth. Now, there are many kings on this earth, many presidents, prime ministers, whatever name you want to give them, that are right now in open rebellion against Christ. But he is their ruler, and they will answer to him one day for how they, how they exercise their, their rule. Revelation 19.16, as well as elsewhere, it talks about Jesus, and it calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. And, you know, that, that doesn't, it's, it's not just a phrase that, that paints a picture of, like, He's the best of the kings, right? Like we use that kind of a, of a term that way. It's kind of a, 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 I forget the word that you use for it, but like there's this, like Paul called himself elsewhere, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Like there were Jews and then there was Paul. Like that's true of Christ, but it's more than that. He's the Lord of those lords. He is the king of all other kings. That is what it means in Revelation 19:16 when it says that. And surely that's meant to comfort and assure us as believers throughout this life as we serve Christ in our generation and as we suffer uh, various things for the sake of his name. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right now reigns over all things at the right hand of God. He, it is the very purpose of God that that kingdom of Christ and his reign expand and grow. We just read in our call to worship Psalm 110.1 where it says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, Adonai, what? Sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You're going to kick your feet up and relax, so to speak. And the thing that's going to be holding up your feet are your enemies. What, that is what God is doing now. It doesn't always look like it. But that is what God is doing through the gospel, through his church, even now. 
is making Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. And the fact that God says that, it's a promise, isn't it? It's, it's God the Father telling God the Son, even Christ himself, sit at my right hand until I, until I he's going to do it, makes an, all his enemies his footstool. Psalm 72.8 says this, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, you know, sometimes Old Testament, the Hebrew there is hard to figure out what the, the tense of the verbs are. If you read the King James, it, it doesn't say it as a request or as a, uh, you know, may this happen. It says uh, he will have dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the end of the earth. It's going to happen. And that is certainly the truth of the matter. Is this not what we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do you pray? You pray that his kingdom might come and his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. His reign, his kingdom, his glory, the manifestation of it, and the culmination of it are to be a part of our prayers, a natural primary part of the prayers of God's people. We should desire it. And if we desire after it, we will pray for it. Well, last but not least, one of the most remarkable statements that Paul makes about the ascension of Christ and his reign in our text is found in the last two verses, 22 and 23, where Paul says that God has not only put all things under Christ's feet, but that he also, quote, gave him, that's gave Christ, gave him as head over all things, what? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a remarkable statement. It's one thing if, 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 the, if Paul had just said, God gave Christ to be head over all things. He's head over all things to, to the church. Not only has God put all things under the feet of his son, but he gave him as head of all things specifically for the church. Notice here that Paul doesn't just say that Jesus is the head of the church, although he most certainly is. Christ is the only head of the church. That was one of the, one of the hallmarks of doctrines of, of the Protestant Reformation. There is only one head of the church, and it's not the Pope. And it's no pastor, it's no bishop, it's no, no one person on earth. It's Christ himself is the only true head uh, of the church. But he's saying much more than that, isn't he? He's saying that Christ is head over all things to the church. In other words, for the church's benefit. He's head over. It isn't like Paul is saying, Christ is head over all things. Oh, and he's also head of the church. That's, I think sometimes it's how we read it. I think some people might actually prefer that it was read in such a way as to say that he's just head of all things to the church. He, he just handles religious stuff. And everything else in the world is beyond his, his power and control. That is not what Paul or any other part of the Bible uh, is saying. Some might prefer to say that because it, it seems to make it much more simple and cut and dry in some ways. But he said over all things to the church or for the church's benefit. He rules over all things at the right hand of God for the benefit and the building of his church. Matthew Henry writes the following, God gave him to be head over all things. It was a gift to Christ, considered as mediator to be advanced to such dominion and headship. And he goes on, and it was a gift to the church to be provided with a head endued with so much power and authority. Think about how many times you read of, of phrases like that. In the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? The first thing he says, before he says, go and make disciples, he says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
because of that, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching. And then what does he say? And lo, I'm with you, what? Always, even at the end of the age, he's saying, the one who has all authority and power in all creation is going to be with you as you make disciples all the way until the end of the age. And what does that mean? It means disciples will be made. He will have a church. He will build his church in a way that the gates of hell can never prevail against it. This should be a great comfort to everyone who's a believer in Christ to know that our Savior and our Lord, the one who died and rose again for our salvation, is even now reigning over all things for the sake of his glory and for the good of his church. Now, you and I probably can't in a lot of ways, uh, especially when you're going through a trial or trials of some kind, we might not be able to trace out or understand the purposes of his providence as you're in the midst of them. But we can be sure that his kingdom cannot fail or end, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against his church or stop his good purposes for his people. Because Christ is the builder of his church. And if the church which Christ purchased with his own blood and for whom he reigns over all things, um, if, if it means that much to our exalted head that he would do such a thing as that, how highly ought we to esteem the church on this earth uh, with all of her sins and shortcomings notwithstanding? How we should prize being numbered among God's people in the church. How we ought to look forward to the Lord's day as the best day of the week and worship with the saints. Look forward to that uh, on his day to be the highlight of that best day of the week. Christ laid down his life to purchase the church. He is building his church. We should look forward to it and prize it as much as he did. If Christ is head over all things to the church, how ought we to seek to do his will in all things? What does Jesus say in the Gospels? Why do you call me what? Lord, Lord, and not do as I say. If we want to show the world around us that Christ is reigning over all things, then we should be in every, every way of our lives bending our knee and confessing with our tongues that Christ is Lord to the glory of God. How ought we to order our lives around his will and around the church for the benefit of the body of Christ? You know, when you think about his exaltation, his reign, um, I think it was J.C. Ryle that said something like this, uh, that men sometimes try to believe on a divided Christ. In other words, they want to divide his offices one from the other. They want to have Jesus as their savior, but they act like they can have him as a savior without having him as their prince or as their Lord. Well, he's, he's ruling over all things. What a strange thing for a Christian to think that, that even though he's reigning over all things, they wouldn't have their Savior to be the one to reign over them. There is no believing in part of Christ. The one who will not have him for their Lord and their King will not have him for their Savior as well. You believe on Christ and all of what he does and all of his offices together, or you're believing on Christ of your own imagination. We don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord, and we submit to his lordship in all things if we believe on him so we, we dare not treat the church which as rob even mentioned earlier is the apple of god's eye the, the bible says we dare not if we believe treat the church as an additional add-on or option you know something on the periphery on the outside well I, you know, all these other things and we'll kind of tack the church on uh, to the outside of it that seriously that is that is not what jesus how he thinks he's head over all things in all creation to the church 
for his people. And, and why would he do that? What does Paul say at the end of the, of the passage? He put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? But the, the, the church, there's a lot of things the Bible calls the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the household of God, all these things, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But the body of Christ, why does Christ care for the church that much? Because it's his body. We are united to him by the work of the Spirit through faith. And so we shouldn't treat the apple of God's eye as if it were some optional add-on as well. Our risen, ascended, and reigning Christ is powerfully at work toward us who believe he is ruling over all things for the sake of his church, building his church and making all things work together for the good of his people. And may, as Paul prayed here in our prayer, may the Lord be pleased to teach us to enlighten the eyes of our hearts to perceive the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe so that we too might worship him and serve him and bear witness of him to all the nations and all of our neighbors, knowing that the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth is with us even now, even to the end of the age. Amen.